Hi, this is Betsy Brander-Smith with the National Police Association, and this is the NPA Report. I am coming to you from a remote location in Wyoming, and I have such a terrific guest with me today. Sheriff Russell Martin, welcome to the program. Well, Sarge, it's a uh, honor and a privilege. I go back a long way and uh, certainly remember J.D. Buck Savage, so it's, uh, it's fun to be with you today. I'm looking forward to it. Oh, Dave and I sure appreciate that. I'll tell you, so Sheriff, you've had, um, you started around the same time I did. You've had a long law enforcement career. Um, tell everybody a little about your police career. Well, I was just thinking about this the other day. I actually, when I was in college, was working full-time as a radio police dispatcher in my hometown in the 70s, started in the 80s. I've actually served in some part of six decades now, six decades. So wow. that makes me really old, but uh, it also gives me a breadth of experience to talk about the changes we've seen over the last 50 years in this profession. So Sheriff, talk about your early days in law enforcement after you were a dispatcher, then you became a police officer. Talk about some of those things you did. Yeah, I tell folks all the time that when this career is finally over with, you know, I'm not going to look back um, at my days so much as a law enforcement executive, but as all of us, you know, it's being that frontline responder and, uh, you know, answering those radio calls, that camaraderie, that time in the locker room, you know, those, uh, uh, you know, those calls that just push the adrenaline. I mean, those are the things that we remember in this profession, you know, and helping people at their toughest moments. So, uh, yeah, it's been a great run. And uh, to be honest with you, when I started this profession, I never thought about being a chief, never thought about being a sheriff. Listen, I just wanted to be a cop and I just wanted to, you know, be a first responder. And, uh, you know, what a privilege it's been. Absolutely. So you you're really one of the um, one of the few sheriffs in the country who started your management career as a police chief. What are tell people what are some of the differences between being a police chief and then being an elected county sheriff? Yeah, you know, Sarge, when I finally worked my way through the ranks and had the privilege of being appointed chief of police in a mid-sized agency in our county seat, um, you know, it was just taking what I'd learned in, and observed in leadership and trying to apply that. Uh, I really didn't aspire to be the county sheriff, but unfortunately, the previous sheriffs had all gotten themselves jammed up either ethically or criminally. And, uh, you know, I had watched as that broke my heart to see this good agency uh, serve under men who just didn't have integrity uh, in that particular moment. So when I got asked if I would consider um, uh, the appointment and running for the position, you know, I had to talk to my wife about it, pray about it. And, you know, we jumped into this thing with both feet. And uh, I will tell you, I had a pretty high opinion of my leadership ability, but uh, I had a lot to learn about being a county sheriff and primarily uh, you know, running a county jail is a whole different world. And I, I, for the first couple of years, I felt like I was drinking water out of a fire hose. But uh, you know what? We've got a good team here. They just needed some leadership and some uh, uh, issues in regards to integrity. And listen, I'm surrounded by great folks. And I think we're one of the finest sheriff's offices in Ohio, if not in the country. That's outstanding. And you are you know, uh, you're in an area where you're seeing um, 
crime on the rise, like, uh, you know, a, a lot of us are around the country. And as the county sheriff, you, you not only have patrol deputies that are dealing with crime as it occurs, but then you're also dealing with it on the jail side where you have the offenders that are awaiting trial or that are serving out their sentences. Um, talk a little bit about what you're seeing crime-wise you know, as we're dealing with the uh, post-George Floyd era in law enforcement. Yeah, you know, uh, Delaware County is a well-heeled county, but the reality of it is, is that part of the city of Columbus, our state's capital, is in this county. And, uh, you know, so we abut right up to uh, the city of Columbus. And uh, as we've seen in all of our metropolitan areas across the country, these significant spikes not just spikes now, but ongoing trends for violent crime and particular homicides and shootings. And uh, so, you know, that's making its way to the suburbs as well. And uh, listen, I've got a great working relationship with our partners at the Columbus Police Department. Uh, you know, they're swimming upstream right now. And the reality of it is, is that a lot of policymakers and politicians, you know, they kind of jumped on the uh, anti-police bandwagon and that wasn't good for this profession. And um, so I felt necessary to, uh, you know, kind of stand up for the men and women uh, that wear a star badge and shield. And when uh, when that crime has made its way into the suburbs, you know, I've uh, you know, I made a point to talk about it as well. So, uh, you know, this is um, this is something that's going it's nationwide and we need to be honest in our assessment of it and honest in how we deal with it as well. Well, and that's the thing is we're and that's one of the things the National Police Association is trying to do is and I know you're you're involved in this as, as well is trying to fight that false narrative that police are the problem and address the issues that really are the problem and, and, you know because I mean we're seeing crime on the rise and you know violent crime and a lot of it is due to the the defund the police movement that is seeing police officers around the country um kind of back off because I mean and we talked to cops you know my husband Dave and I as we're training around the country and you're training as well talking to police officers who say well you know I I'm not as aggressive as I used to be because I don't want to end up on the front page of the newspaper or on you know that video on CNN or end up indicted for just doing my job and that's very frustrating as a as a leader how do you deal with that yeah, well, I think you've got to be uh, out in front. And I will tell you, we talk about this frequently, uh, the voice from the crowd and the voice of the crowd. And I will tell you, I am convinced that by and large, Americans still respect what law enforcement does. But, I, but we've been bullied by the voice from the crowd that wants to take with a broad brushstroke and paint all cops as uh, racist or violent. And listen, you and I both know that uh, uh, good cops hate nothing worse than bad cops. And, um, you know, I don't think reform means that we have to tolerate crime and that reform means that we have to back down from enforcing the law. And, uh, you know, so I think that the challenge before us is to, uh, you know, fight against the narrative that's out there, uh, the, the rare incidents and occurrence when law enforcement goes off the rails and we really need to affirm the 98, 99% of good law enforcement that's being done each and every day that brings 
uh, improved quality of life to all of our communities. That's the battle, and that's the message that needs to go out routinely. Absolutely, yeah, you are absolutely correct. And and you know, as a sheriff who also runs the jail, you see what happens when um, you know these a lot of your young offenders. I'm guessing that there are you see drug issues. I'm guessing you see family issues, right? Maybe a lack of fathers in the home or or whatever. What do you think we can do, not just law enforcement, but as a society, to deal with some of those issues so that young people don't feel like they have to go out and commit crime? Well, I think you and I would both agree that uh, the best training takes place in the home, you know, and that when you've got a good structure there in the home to train young people that's that's significant and you know what if there's an absence of that whether there, if there's a father figure that's absent you know other men have to step up and, and and intervene early on so listen i can roam the halls of my jail right now and a good percentage of those um, men in particular out there that have gone astray it's because they didn't have good positive influences early on in their life so that's critical to uh you know good communities it, it begins in the home but, you know, uh, in our jail, we've taken the uh, uh, idea that, you know, while they're captive, we're going to provide services for them. We're going to try and help turn people's lives around. And I think that there's no lost causes. But we've also got to separate the wheat from the chaff. And there are those violent offenders who, frankly, they, uh, they don't need to be back out in the community because they've shown themselves to not have an interest to uh, availing themselves to help. And it's those people that we need to you know, separate from the innocent folks out there. And, uh, you know, to think you're going to turn everybody around, that's a little bit naive. I think we do our best to help those who want help and those who are intent on committing uh, evil, violent, criminal acts. Those folks got to be separated because we got to protect the good people of our communities. Well, and that's the thing is we have seen, uh, again, in a, in a post-George Floyd America, the issues of either no cash bail or, um, you know, letting virtually everyone out on no bail, you know, except for the most violent of offenders. And I mean, recidivism, it's a problem, right? It's we, you know, <laughs> you know, that's something we have to be able to talk about. What do you think that we can do um, about that? Well, I, you know, I think our jail does a good job in a lot of jails across the country. You know, I mean, there are people that genuinely want to get helped. You know, in this narrative that everybody that does drugs ends up in jail or prison, that's just another false narrative. You know, sometimes jail is a great place for intervention because when people sober out from their drug addictions, then with a clear head, they can say, hey, listen, I need some help. So we want to provide those services to people who genuinely want to turn their lives around. And I I support that wholeheartedly in our jail. But again, there are those offenders out there that they're not ready for their lives to be turned around. And while nobody likes to warehouse people, and you know, it's disturbing to walk through the halls of the jail and see people incarcerated. I'm never comfortable with that. But listen, we have some murderers right now sitting in our jail. There's no place for them other than incarceration. And we have violent offenders who, you know, on on the slightest whim, they're involved in a shootout in the community. Listen, those folks aren't ready to have their lives turned around. They need to be incarcerated as well. So again, um, you know, I don't think cops 
like throwing people in jail and throwing away the key. What we have to do, and I think the tools are in place to separate those violent offenders who are not ready for reform right now, to keep them out of population, and those who generally, um, you know, they want intervention and they want some help. So, you know, I think that's what the criminal justice system needs to be involved with. But I also think that the men and women who serve in this profession or communities, we need to keep pounding that message home that, listen, uh, families matter and homes matter. And uh, people ask me all the time, Sarge, what's the best thing we can do to prevent crime? And I tell families, have dinner at home with your kids. Treat them those, uh, teach and treat them about dignity and honor and respect. That's one of the most significant things we can do to prevent crime down the road. Now you're involved in, um, you know, because you are a man of service, you're involved in several nonprofits um, to help people and help families talk about that a little bit. I think people need to hear about this. Well, I, I appreciate that. You know, I learned a long time ago uh, from watching people that volunteer that, listen, government's not going to solve all of people's problems and that the church, families, communities, nonprofits, those people are having the greatest impact one-on-one. Uh, -on -one. I'm involved with the Grace Clinic. It's a free medical clinic that's faith-based. We provide medical services for those people that are indigent or going through a hard time, um, you know, with the intent of not only dealing with their physical ailments, but also emotional and spiritual. And it's all voluntary. So uh, that's one thing I've been involved with for over a decade. I helped raise money um, uh, for over, uh, over, helped raise over $3 million to get our first domestic violence shelter in this county to help those people break that. You and I both know that domestic violence is a cycle. So we needed a place, a safe haven for those folks. So I've been involved in that as well. Uh, I've also been involved in um, uh, sexual assault nurse examiners, uh, nonprofit organization to get training out there for nurses to help victims of sexual assault. Um, currently serve on the board of Bowling Green State University as a trustee. And I've been involved with my church and other nonprofits Anywhere that your thumbprint can go to help people in need, that's where we need to jump in with both feet. And, uh, you know, I really think that's what makes a difference in the lives of community members, not just waiting on government to step in and help people. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, you and I have been literally government employees our whole entire adult lives. And, uh, and, and I always tell people, um, yeah, I've worked in, I work in the government. So I know that government doesn't always do everything really well. And, uh, and so what you outlined is a great um, way for people to see that it's government isn't going to fix all our problems and they shouldn't. And yet we live in a society now where it's just more and more and more and more government and especially when it's uh, when it, we talk about law enforcement, there's so much talk of more regulation, more reform, you know, and, and especially when it comes to, uh, for example, use of force issues that that police officers are really being uh, hamstrung as far as our use of force. How do you talk to the community about that to 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 help them understand that? Yes, sometimes we have to use force against bad people to protect ourselves or good people. Yeah, I think, you know, uh, we all know that with the advent of the uh, uh, camera phone, 
that people were exposed to a lot of things that, uh, that we had seen all of our careers. I know the first time my wife saw somebody resist arrest, she said, oh my goodness, that looks terrible. I said, yeah, hon, that goes on day in and day out. When people resist arrest, uh, lawful arrest, it's a tough situation. I don't care how big the offender is, to control somebody is not easy. And the optics of that aren't good. So that's one of the things I tell people is, you're now seeing what law enforcement's been, been dealing with for decades. But you know, uh, Sarge, to your earlier point on uh, the cooperation between the government and the people, you know, uh, I think when you look back at our founding documents, you look about at this social contract, the best governance is decentralized, it's local control, and it's when there's mutual respect and understanding between the government, in this particular case, law enforcement, and the people they serve. So I think it's, it's incumbent on us to be transparent in how we do the job. And listen, I've been saying for long before the camera phone, do the job as if the six o'clock news was looking over your shoulder so that you could justify it uh, no matter what you were doing. And that's how I've lived my career. And that's what I tell young deputies and young police officers as well. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a commitment with the communities that we serve and we have, there are some expectations and we need, to, we need to uphold our expectations. But for us to be successful too, the communities need to entrust that to us. And um, you know, I, I'm also associated with Point Man Leadership Institute. We do uh, principle-based leadership all around the world, primarily with law enforcement leaders. And I have partners in the UK, South Africa, where there's not decentralized law enforcement. And what I've found is that the best government is decentralized, local accountability. That's what makes the difference. Oh, that's a fantastic way to put it. Now, I know that you are involved in um, training law enforcement leaders. What are, what are some more of those principles, in addition to what you just talked about, that, that you want law enforcement leadership to know about? Again, because you've done that chief's job and now you're in a county sheriff's position, um, sometimes similar, but sometimes very, very different, isn't it? Yeah, and uh, you know, we talk about, uh, we all know what those good behaviors that we expect from leaders are. And one of the things we talk about at the Point Man Leadership Institute is we can all be in agreement on what's expected from behaviors, but it's really, it's the, it's the character and the heart and soul of the men and women that serve in this profession makes a difference. That's what's gonna impact your behavior. So we talked a lot about integrity, um, you know, living consistently, both personally and professionally, and how that impacts your behavior. You know, and frankly, at the end of the day, treating people the way you want to be treated and uh, seeing yourself as a citizen servant. We think that's so important too in that training. Sheriff, how do, what do you think we as a profession are going to have to do to bring more people to this profession, especially, especially young, educated um, men and women to come into this profession in this atmosphere we're in right now? Well, I tell my folks, uh, each and every day that they go out, they are ambassadors for this profession. And that those one-on-one -on -one contacts, those one-on-one -on -one relationships, that's how you'll uh, win this. Uh, I do think our messaging is important. I don't think we uh, circle the wagons and it's not us against them. It's, uh, you know, listen, we need to listen to the community. And when we're not meeting expectations, we need to be willing to change. And I think that law enforcement's done a great job through the decades 
of changing with the times. And, uh, you know, reform doesn't mean, um, you know, we have to accept violence in our streets or that we have to disregard what the data tells us. But I do think we need to listen to our communities. We need to treat people with dignity and respect. And we need to get out into the community whenever that opportunity presents itself and continue to advocate for this profession and be ambassadors for a noble and honorable calling. And, um, you know, I, I think it still is a calling today to serve uh, unselfishly to make a difference in our communities. Well, and Sheriff, as we start to wrap up here, I, one of the great ways that you communicate um, with the public, not just your own community, but, you know, internationally is social media, right? Where can people follow you? And here's some of the wisdom that you have to share. Well, I appreciate that. I do try to be very intentional on my Twitter account, and that's uh, Sheriff R. Martin uh, on, on Twitter to provide leadership insights that I've learned along the way. And, uh, you know, I'm committed to continue to advocate for this profession and for our communities on that platform. And uh, I'm on Instagram. It's a little bit more lighthearted at uh, Sheriff Selfies. That's a little bit more personal. But uh, the best place is to uh, follow the Delaware County Sheriff's Office, Delco Sheriff on Twitter, my personal Twitter account at Sheriff R. Martin. And, um, you know, we're just trying to preach out there that there are good men and women in this profession doing the right things each and every day. Sheriff, we so appreciate you spending time with us. I encourage everyone to follow you, to hear what you have to say. And uh, we can't thank you enough for spending time with us today. It's a pleasure being here, Sarge. Keep doing what you're doing as well. And uh, it's an honor to be associated with you. Thanks so much. And if you would like more information about the National Police Association, visit us at nationalpolice.org. Last year, law enforcement officers were involved in hundreds of thousands of use of force incidents. A use of force incident is when an officer must use nonverbal tactics to gain control of a dangerous situation. Put the knife on the ground. In many cases, officers have no choice but to use force when a suspect doesn't comply with a lawful order. Use of force is always ugly. No one likes it, especially police officers. Together, we can help de-escalate these dangerous encounters. Help police officers by complying with their lawful orders. Don't attack, attempt to disarm, or flee from an officer. Use of force is an officer's last option. Most incidents can be avoided by not resisting arrest. If you feel you've been wrongfully detained by a police officer, then seek a legal solution after the encounter has been resolved. Let's keep everyone safe. Comply now and complain later.